Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio, Amir Tibon. Today's episode will be devoted completely to the situation in Ukraine. We'll start with a short news update from our Jewish world correspondent, Judy Martz, on the waves of immigration that Israel is expecting to see now from Ukraine, thousands trying to reach the country, and also on what Israeli citizens from Ukrainian origins are thinking about the government's weak response to Putin's invasion. After that short conversation, we'll hear from Colonel Udi Evental, an Israeli expert on strategic planning, about the Russian military's advance so far in Ukraine, how the Ukrainian forces are holding up, what are the chances that this will escalate into an overall conflict in Europe, and what can Israel learn about its own relations with Russia and the Syrian arena from the events in Ukraine. Here we go. As the war in Ukraine deteriorates, the Russian military closes in on Kiev, and hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians are in danger of uh, losing their homes, becoming refugees. There's also an Israeli dimension of the story, and we want to hear about it from our correspondent, Judy Maltz. Hello, Judy. I am here. How are you? Um, like everyone, uh, disturbed a bit but by what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, first of all, um, what are the most updated numbers that we have right now of Ukrainians who are trying to get here to Israel? So the most updated numbers I have as of Sunday afternoon is that since Thursday, when the Jewish agency set up a special hotline for both Ukrainian Jews who are trying to leave and Israelis who have relatives in Ukraine, they have received 5,000 calls. Of those, about half, that is 2,500 from Ukrainians who are interested in leaving immediately for Israel. So if this continues at this pace, and just for comparison's sake, last year in all of 2021, we had a little over 3,000 immigrants from Ukraine. And now we're talking about 2,500 who said they want to leave immediately within the span of three days. So just imagine what is going to happen. There are an estimated 200,000 Ukrainians who are eligible to move to Israel and become citizens automatically under the law of return. That does not mean they are halachic Jews. In other words, they are not necessarily the children of Jewish mothers, but they have at least one Jewish grandparent. So that is huge potential. And because everyone is aware that there are so many people trying to leave right now, the Jewish agency has set up Uh, special stations at six points along the Ukrainian border to help those who want to get out, because it's it's a pretty bureaucratic process making Aliyah. You have to be able to show documentation that that your uh, one grandparent or your parents uh, were Jewish. You need to show marriage certificates, uh, birth certificates. It doesn't happen overnight, but obviously it's not going to take months now either because there is a state of emergency there. So these stations have been set up to help those who want to leave and who want to leave soon get out as soon as possible. So the Jewish agency has beefed up their staffs along the borders there, and they're working in conjunction with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And you also reported for us on Saturday night that already the first group of Israel-bound immigrants from Ukraine have managed to cross into Poland to leave the country for safety. Yeah, this was the first group 
bound for Israel since a week ago today. A week ago today, actually, Amir, I was at Ben Gurion Airport when a group of 75 uh, Ukrainian Jews landed. And that was the last flight before the invasion. This was right before the war broke out. Yeah, it was uh, four days before. And you know they were obviously very, very relieved. Although I don't imagine that those people looking back a week ago, that they imagine how bad things would be a week later. And so this first group yesterday that is bound for Israel is a very, very small group because what happened is they came from all over the country, but there were among the group quite a few families. And then many of the men were turned back because Ukraine is not allowing fighting age men to leave the country. And then families had to decide, are we going to stick together or the moms and the kids going to come to Israel and leave the dads behind? So you can imagine there were some very, very tearful scenes at the border. Wow, that's a tough, tough, tough situation. Terrible, uh, yeah. We're seeing... Both to be uprooted and to and to have to make a decision like that at the last minute. We're seeing, of course, one Jewish Ukrainian who made a statement that he's not leaving the country right now, which is Vladimir Zelensky, the president, who vowed to stay in Kiev. And uh, I have to say, looks right now like one of the most courageous Jews in the world. And there was right. also this phone call he had with uh, Prime Minister Bennett, where they discussed maybe Israeli mediation in the conflict. When you speak to Ukrainian Jews recent immigrants or those who have been living in Israel for a long time, how do they view the Israeli position toward the current conflict? I think that uh, they would like Israel to be a bit more forceful and not as neutral and sitting on the fence, even though it's less sitting on the fence in recent days. But I, I think they would have liked Israel to come out more on the side of Ukraine than it has. Official Israel. I mean, the public is overwhelmingly on the side of Ukraine. On Saturday night, we had this incredible de- demonstration here in Tel Aviv, where it's not clear if there were 10,000, 15,000 or 20,000 in whatever the case was, it's still a huge number to come out to the streets to demonstrate in solidarity with the Ukrainian people. We don't see that often here. No, not at all. And you had a great story about that, I think, about two weeks ago, before the war started, about the Ukrainian and Russian born <laughs> uh, or raised Israelis who are taking different sides. And I encourage the, the readers to look for it. And we'll also keep uh, getting updates from you this week about the uh, issue of Jewish immigration and the Jewish communities in Ukraine and around it and how they are affected by this conflict. So if you're interested in the issue, keep following. Go on arts.com, get a writer alert for Judy because she's going to have some very interesting stories this week. Thank you, Amir. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Judy. And up next, Udi Evental, our guest on the war in Ukraine and the lessons it offers Israel and other democracies. Our guest today is Udi Evental, a colonel reserve in the IDF, an expert on strategic planning and also teaches policy planning at Reichman University. Hi, Udi. Hi. Good to be here. Thanks for joining. And we're going to devote our discussion today to what is happening right now in Ukraine. We are recording on Sunday afternoon here in Israel. By the time you hear this, maybe some things will have changed on the ground. But what we are seeing today, Udi, looks a bit like a stalemate on the ground. I think it's too early to tell. We see only snapshots and it's very difficult for us to complete the whole puzzle and to decide what's going on on the ground. We don't see the entire picture. We get a bit of information here, a bit of information there. And what we are seeing on the media is totally, I think, uh, distorted. 
keep in mind that the sides that are involved in this conflict are using a lot of disinformation and deception. So it's very difficult to analyze and see what's going on on the ground. But if I want really to still give you some sort of an idea of how I see what's going on on the ground, I think the Russians are invading from three directions, from the south, from the east, and from the north. And I think they are more successful in the south and in the east in Donbass. Maybe they are encountering some unexpected uh, difficulties on the way to Kiev from Belarus in the north, but they will come also from the south and from the east because their main target is Kiev. I think the bare minimum of their achievement in these preliminary stages of the crisis is to replace the government in Kiev and put a puppet government instead. This is the main objective. How will they get there? They are going to Kiev. Will they enter with armor and everything inside the city in order to decide it? Remains to be seen. I think part of the Russian doctrine is to, at some stages, to stop, to pause and uh, assess the situation, assess the ability to achieve their political goals, and then recalculate and continue. So I think we are in very preliminary stages and it still remains to be seen. I wouldn't exaggerate the problems that they are encountering. The expectation for them to achieve their military goals in 72 hours. And just take over the entire country like that. They can't take over the entire country. It's a huge country, 40 million people, 600,000 uh, square kilometers. It's bigger than Iraq. And Iraq took a month to conquer and pacify. Yeah. And then, of course, the real trouble began. Exactly. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Russians will achieve their strategic goals. The preliminary goals of changing their government, they might achieve it. I think it will be sooner than later. The timelines are flexible here because it's evolving and uh, according to the situation on the ground. I think the, there are three main questions regarding the situation on the ground in Ukraine and what's going on in the ground. First of all, is the Russian plan working or is it disrupted completely? And that what you're saying is we just don't know right now. We don't know yet and we will see it. They haven't used all their forces. According to the reports, they have used about maybe 50-60% of their forces so they can throw in some more capabilities and forces. They haven't started aggressive air attacks. We don't see Kiev being completely turned to rubble, basically. Not yet, not yet, but it can happen. I think if they encounter problems on their way to Kiev and inside Kiev, they might start this. Uh, we haven't seen the scenes like we have seen in uh, Syria, where carpet bombing and uh, very brutal attacks against civilian population. W what the Russians basically did and helped Assad do, for example, in Idlib province in northwestern yes, Syria, in where they completely in, in destroyed Idlib. entire villages and towns. Or you can take Aleppo. They burned it to the ground. So we don't see those scenes yet. I think they have some more constraints than they had in Syria. For example, this is their Slavic brothers over there. They want to be perceived and come across as liberators. Putin thinks that uh, Ukraine is not a real country and the people there are just uh, waiting to greet the Russian liberators. Yeah, That's it, at least how he publicly described it. Yes, it's part of Mother Russia, so you don't destroy. But I think uh, if push come to shove on the ground militarily, he will do that. So I think we are in the beginning yet and we have to have patience. But like I said, so the first question is... Uh, is it working? Is, it, is the plan working? Is it going according to plan? And uh, this is the first one. Uh, and I think it's too early to tell. The second one, will they encounter a partisan movement on the ground? Guerrilla. Guerrilla warfare 
that will put a lot of pressure on the Russian forces on the ground. My colleague Anshil Pfeffer wrote last week on Haaretz that uh, if that happens, Ukraine could become Putin's Afghanistan. Yes, and there is a scenario of Kievgrad, if you want. Mm-hmm. And I think the early signs here tells us that it might happen. That will be some very strong opposition on the ground, not organized. Even after the regular military ceases to function in some areas, it might be replaced with guerrilla. And I think there are early signs that can tell us that this is the case. If you look at the resolve, of the leadership of Zelensky, but also on the ground, what we see, I think this is a plausible scenario. There's a fighting spirit that I think comes through. Again, maybe some of it is a propaganda. Maybe some of it is wishful thinking on our behalf. I think most of the people listening to this podcast at least feel inspired to some degree by Zelensky and his uh, resolve. But I agree with you, it's hard to ignore the sense that this is a real sentiment. And like you said, it's a country of uh, more than 40 million people. Even a small percentage of the population can make a big difference if that's the direction it goes. Yes, and, and there are also some other questions that remain so obscene. What Putin will decide to do inside Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Will, he, will he conquer Kiev completely? Will he conquer the whole country? It's going to be very difficult for him. I read an interview with Petraeus, mm-hmm. uh, who was the commander. Centcom, CIA. And he was the commander who was fighting the insurgency inside Iraq. And according to him, it will be very difficult for the Russians to take over with 190,000 soldiers to take all over the country. And if they don't take the country, the Ukrainian insurgency will have some places to organize. I mean, territories that they like, can organize from and continue the guerrilla warfare. And uh, Like, uh, for example, uh, Lvov, right? We're hearing right now that uh, if Kiev falls, they will try to move their government to Lvov. And then if Putin doesn't take that part of Ukraine, the Western part, it can become a base of support for the insurgency in the other exactly. occupied and, parts. And there are some other examples. So, so the second question is the guerrilla question, mm-hmm. the th- or the insurgency. The third one is, uh, and we, we touched that, if the Russians are going to decide that they are changing the mode of operation and they start, they start being brutal, especially from the air and also with armor inside the built-up areas, civilian areas. So this is the third question. And in the end of the day, the last question is, I think, what is planning to do with Ukraine? Will he use the occupied territories, the gains, mm-hmm. the territorial gains, does he use them as a bargain chip to achieve political goals vis-a-vis the West? Or he, he swallowed the whole country and he continues. And this is, I mean... the Continues westward, you mean? Continues, we will discuss it, mm-hmm. continues with his other objectives. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should dedicate a few moments to his objectives according... Mm-hmm. To his declarations but he might continue we'll talk about it so this is a big question i mean the the jury is still out and the way he's going to conclude his success or failures inside ukraine will have a lot of influence on his uh, future moves toward other countries maybe in the region maybe other countries if we look what are the declared objectives of putin And I think now we have to take him more seriously because in the beginning there was an argument. Maybe he's just talking. Maybe he's bluffing in order to achieve some political goals without using force. And this was, I think, the assessment of the Israeli establishment and many Russian experts. It's interesting to note that Israel here, I think, took a different approach than the United States, right? The United States all along said there's going to be an invasion. There's going to be a war. He's going to try to take Kiev. Whereas Israeli officials said, uh, that's not our assessment. That's not what we think. And it turns out we were wrong. 
Yes, it's, it's interesting if you want to talk to intelligence. This is a big chunk of my career. I was in, for many years in the intelligence. I belong to the intelligence. I think, first of all, the American, unlike Iraq, maybe, they were right all the way. But they used intelligence and they were exposing intelligence in order to deter Putin from continuing. They mm-hmm. used intelligence for this campaign before it started. They and wanted to show him that they can read his moves. They can read his moves and they want to publicize his moves in order to create an opposition and maybe try to deter him. So, I mean, there was a use in the intelligence. It was not pure. Yes, uh, so, yes. so this is why, it, like I said, disinformation and deception are an integral part of this whole conflict. And sometimes it's difficult. And by the way, the American uh, intelligence has been wrong uh, yeah, in many it's, other it's... cases, especially Iraq and the WMD. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I don't know, Woody, they're still looking for it. It's only been 20 years. Maybe they will find something. I knew the, personally the guy who was uh, looking for it. The, the, the American, his name is General Dayton that you know. He was, mm-hmm. pa- he was responsible for the forced buildup of the Palestinian security apparatuses here. But after yes. the war in Iraq, he was the head of Iraqi survey group. This is a group uh, who, who looked for the, for the WMD in Iraq after uh, Iraq was conquered. And they haven't found it. And he, is, he, he believes very deeply that uh, the WMD went to Syria. Mm. They had some indications of uh, convoys at night in El Qaim in the western side of Iraq mm. moving to Syria. And he is positive that the WMD went to Syria. But I think they have stopped looking for it. If you mentioned Syria, I do want to ask you, though, are we seeing right now anything happening in Ukraine that uh, maybe it can be attributed to the policies that uh, Russia has? carried out in Syria, maybe some things that the Russian forces tried over there in Syria and are now using in Ukraine. Are there some similarities? I think definitely there are, because Syria for the Russians, among other things, uh, was a laboratory, military laboratory to test their capabilities. And they used in Syria standoff capabilities, uh, standoff attacks, accurate attacks with the uh, cruise missiles and other capabilities, and I think it was a proving ground. And not all the capabilities and knowledge that the Russians have gained already has been demonstrated in Ukraine, but uh, like we said, it might be very soon uh, demonstrated in Ukraine. So uh, Syria is important for the studying process of the military or the, the lesson learned for the military forces in how to execute an interstate operation like that, like movement, fire, attack center of gravity, of a regime, etc., etc. So they have many lessons learned, and I think they are implementing them, and they will implement them more as time goes by in Ukraine. One difference I see, though, which is interesting to discuss, is that in Syria, the Russians came in to save an existing regime, keep it in power. In Ukraine, they're trying to do something different, topple an existing regime, and one that was democratically elected just two years ago. Yes, in Ukraine, they are trying to topple a legitimate regime, and uh, in Syria, they were trying to save an illegitimate regime. I mean, but, but the modus operandi in those countries, there are many similarities, and they can use the lesson learned. But of course, I'm not sure which is more complicated, you know. Syria is also, I mean, there was a large insurgency in Syria, a civil war in Syria. They came in the middle of it when the, when the Assad regime was on the brink of collapsing, and they tried to change 
the whole equation in Syria and save the Assad regime. So it's, it was also an uphill battle, you can say. But I think the mission in Ukraine is, is a different story because the, the whole Western world is watching and trying to influence what's going on. It's not only Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is the battleground, but I mean, the campaign is, is a global one. And maybe we'll touch it later. I do want to touch that uh, because I think another interesting uh, difference, and, and you hinted at it, is that in Syria, at the end of the day, the West did not come through. At the end of the day, the Western world decided not to truly get involved in Syria. I'm not even talking about boots on the ground, which I think nobody ever expected would be an option. Uh, but even the level of support that the insurgents received was very limited. And now in Ukraine, there are early signs that things could be changing, right? We saw Germany committing this weekend to provide weapons to the government. We see other European countries promising more and more weapons and support. The United States is pushing through with very, very tough sanctions, and so is the EU. How do you assess the role of the West right now in this war? Look, it's very difficult to compare between Syria and Ukraine. Because Syria, from a Western point of view, from American and the international community point of view, it was a local problem. Ukraine is a global problem. And this is why we see the West much more mobilized. With limitations, of course. With limitations, with caveats, and we'll touch them maybe, but they are much more engaged because what is at stake is the global order. How the world we are, go- we are going to live in the next decades will look like. This is the struggle. Ukraine, it's not only the battle there, it's the battle of the global order. And I can really say that through the fog of war, it is already clear that the battle or the struggle or this conflict is a struggle on world order and how the world will look like. And I think it's already influencing global affairs and and the global arena completely. This conflict in Ukraine is going to decide the by-elections in the United States and the whole presidency of President Biden. Like Bush had 9-11, he he was surprised by 9-11, he had other plans, but he became the global war on terror and 9-11 president. And And he, he knew how to turn it around for a political advantage. It doesn't look like Biden has found a way to do that yet with Ukraine. But Maybe. Like Reagan, he was fighting the Soviet evil empire, and this was his mission. Now, uh, like in the Blues Brothers, Biden has a mission from God. And the mission from God is to save the Western world from this flagration of any rules and any international norms that could be uh, devastated by the moves of Putin. So if that's the mission from God or from the American people or uh, from anyone... Is uh, cutting Russia off from SWIFT and putting sanctions on Putin and on the Russian banks enough to achieve that? No, it's not. SWIFT is important for a country to be able to make messages and exchange uh, in trade. But there are other ways to trade that uh, can bypass SWIFT. SWIFT is not the question. It's important that this measure was taken. It's important to show the resolve of the international community because it was not in the pocket until two days ago. And now it is achieved. But it's not going to be enough. You mentioned Germany, Netherlands and other countries pushing weapons that can change the balance of power inside, like the anti-tanks missiles, like the javelins and the stingers that can shoot down helicopters and uh, Russian uh, airplanes. This is much more important to do. This might also not be enough because the mission is to persuade Putin to stop Mm -hmm. and negotiate and not continue. 
And I think they are doing something else that was not very much discussed. I think the nuclear dimension is already on the table. If you hear President Biden talk about if they touch an inch of NATO territory, the United States will use the full force of American power. That's uh, very uh, yeah, obvious. I mean, full... You know, This is the full, <laughs> the full extent of American power. And, and also Putin was talking that if someone intervenes in their operation in, in Ukraine, uh, they will retaliate in a way history hasn't seen before. So you see SWIFT is something relatively small. They need to do much more in order to dissuade Putin from continuing. And if he continues, I don't think he will continue straight away after Ukraine to one of the NATO countries bordering Ukraine. But he can go to Moldova, he can threaten Sweden and Finland, yes. he can do other stuff in order to put pressure. So we're, we're talking about SWIFT, but Udi is already taking us nuclear. And I can see that while you're saying this with the Aaron, our producer is thinking, what song are we going to put in the beginning? You, you listeners already know, of course, the song, you heard it, but uh, we, we need something strong this time. I mean, it's the end of the world, literally. I mean, no, but I think, I think the way we still have a way to get into a third world war. But this is something that was unimaginable two weeks ago. Now we can imagine it. So this is the big difference. And I think if Putin is not deterred, he can go there. Because now you have to go back to Putin's objectives, declared objectives. And we didn't believe him, like we said, we didn't believe him in the beginning. And he proved everybody that he is willing to raise the bets, that he is a gambler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I think... The whole world is taking more seriously what he said before and what he is saying. And what does he say? He says, "I want Ukraine to never be part of NATO, never, never, never. So he can achieve that if he replaces the government in Kiev. Second, he wants to return the situation in Eastern Europe to the Soviet era, meaning But all of these countries will meaning be under, okay. under, under the area of influence of Russia, all the Eastern Europe. And the third demand. is that the United States withdraw all of its strategic capabilities, defensive and offensive, preposition, uh, missile defense, uh, and of course, uh, nuclear missiles that are in position in five places in the continent. He wants them to be taken out. Mm-hmm. And those are demands that the, the, the United States cannot accept. But if he's not deterred, he might continue to put pressure in order to achieve these objectives. And then we are nearing the risk of a larger conflict, because if a NATO state is involved, and you have Article 5 in NATO, that if one state is involved, all states are under attack, then we can find ourselves deteriorating very quickly to a third world war. I think we are not there yet, and the jury is still out, even in Ukraine. We have a long way to go, but this is something we can already imagine. And this is a big difference. This is why the, the world order is at stake here. And from the Israeli perspective, what does it mean? Because uh, up until now, Israel has found a way to kind of like walk between the lines, denounce Russia finally last week, but not too forcefully, offer some support for Ukraine, but nothing really significant. We're not sending javelins. We're maybe sending medicine. The more this escalates, the more this deteriorates, how difficult will it be for Israel to stay on the sidelines? I think it's, it's going to be very difficult. We have a problem. We don't, we don't understand the magnitude of this event in Ukraine. And we are like walking between the drops, like we say in Hebrew, walking between the lines. We are, we are trying to condemn. We are trying to condemn 
but stay on the sidelines, etc., etc. I think this is a mistake. This is the big question here that is going to, what will be the Israeli declared policy vis-a-vis this conflict? And this is going to be discussed this afternoon in the cabinet in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And what's at stake here? We have a problem. Why don't we want to go all the way? I mean, when you talk about values and history and our nature as a democratic state, the answer is very easy. We have to be in the way, completely in the Western side. But why are we afraid to be there? Because we have a Russian constraint in Syria. And what is the constraint? We have a strategic objective to push back against the Iranians in our borders, in Syria and other places. And the Russian can limit... Our, our operational abilities. They can put some constraints on our freedom of operation in Syria. And this is very important to us, and we don't want to be there. But I think this is really neglectable if we assess uh, what is on the other side of the equation. And the other side of the equation is that we are, we are relatively dependent on the United States when it comes to Iran and the nuclear problem. Mm-hmm. Our special relationship with the United States are on the line here. Yes. Special relationship. And what is the special relationship? Our qualitative military edge is supported by the United States. We want to have Congress with us. We don't want to alienate Congress. And this is, I mean, this is a large-scale conflict, global conflict. And we can encounter some problems in Congress. And I remind you, you know very well, that we are waiting for the package for... The Iron Dome package to arrive. The Iron Dome interceptor pa- package to arrive. This could, could jeopardize this funding of $1 billion. And there are so many examples here. The second issue is our global image. Mm-hmm. We have an asset. Israel is an asset in the international community, and this is its image as the only democracy in the, in the Middle East. This image could be shattered if we are not completely in line with the West and with, the free world. With the other democracies. If, if all the democracies of the world stand up to Putin in this event and Israel is the only one that's breaking away, you're saying this could cause harm. Exactly. So this is on the other side of the equation, and our interests can be jeopardized from this other side of the equation. And last but not least, I think we exaggerate the Russian constraint on our freedom of operation inside Syria. Mm. Because first, the Russians are now involved in a global conflict, and uh, I mean, Syria is, is neglectable. Second, if we do operate, I don't think the Russians are going to engage our airplanes with their uh, military defense capabilities or uh, anti, anti-aircraft capabilities, advanced capabilities that are in Syria, because if our, our airplanes are uh, threatened, they might react and they might expose the weakness of uh, the Russian air defense in Syria. Interesting. So, so this is second. And third, they have an interest in Syria. They don't want to Iran- the Iranians to become too powerful in Syria. Mm-hmm. They, this is their interest. I mean, the, the local interest inside Syria. So, and we are, t- we are doing the job for them with American airplanes, Israeli pilots, and we are doing a Russian job there. So I don't think the Russian will be very quick to restrain us inside Syria. So I think we are scaring ourselves a little bit with this uh, problem of the freedom of operation. It is important, but I wouldn't exaggerate it. And it's minor comparing to the other constraints that we have from our international image, special relationship with the United States, qualitative military edge, and the list is long. Last question I want to ask you, Udi. We saw over the weekend a report by uh, Gilly Cohen in uh, Cannes News 
that there has been an initiative coming from the Ukrainian side that maybe Israel will mediate between Russia and Ukraine. Do you think this is a real possibility? Uh, would it serve Israeli interests to do it? This is a tough question because uh, if you want to be a power broker, honest power broker, you need to take a, a step back from the conflict. Don't condemn either side, etc. And we cannot afford ourselves to be neutral right now. We have to take a position. Take a clear position serves our interests better. And this is why I think Prime Minister Bennett is not very enthusiastic to stuck himself in the middle of a global conflict. Okay, we'll see. It's definitely an interesting idea, but I agree with you. Uh, you know, Israel uh, probably not the likeliest candidate to eventually fill this job. Udi uh, Eventhal, thank you very much for joining us for a fascinating discussion today of the military and geopolitical uh, implications. And uh, we invite the listeners to continue following the updates on haaretz.com. We have reporting on the ground from Ukraine and great analysis by our team of writers. And uh, personally hope that maybe somehow the conflict will come down and uh, peace will return to Ukraine. And uh, we can come back to the Iranian nuclear problem. Yeah, another, exactly, another more boring uh, issue. Uh, I also want to thank you listeners for joining us today and to thank Aaron Ehrlich, our producer. My colleague Alison Kaplan-Sommer will be here again on Friday with a new episode of Haaretz Weekend. And until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.